1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, what I want to talk about tonight is um, prayer, uh, particularly what we would call a prayer life. Uh, I want to look at it topically a little bit, but the idea is that scriptures, when they talk about prayer, you'll see it talks about prayer in a whole lot of different ways, and that's because prayer is supposed to be a life-encompassing thing, uh, not just a little piece of our life. And the term, even though it's not necessarily directly biblical, but the idea of prayer life encapsulates something that the scriptures teach us. So I'm going to read, you can wait there in Timothy, I just want to read a couple other passages to you first. You might be familiar with these, but I want you to notice how many different words and descriptions of prayer are mentioned here. In Daniel... When Daniel was reading the prophecies of Jeremiah and figured out some of the things that God was doing, in Daniel 9 he says, Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Combining, you see there. Philippians 4, 6, we know this, but be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And here now in 1 Timothy 2, look at verse 1. Again, Paul will say, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable life, and all godliness and reverence. So what you see here is these terms that aren't just thrown around haphazardly, and they're not just all an explanation of the same thing. They are different aspects of a life that is supposed to be expressed through the Christian life in prayer. Jesus, of course, is always our ultimate example in terms of this. Um, Jesus led a life of prayer. Jesus did not just pray. Jesus prayed alone and with others. He prayed privately and publicly. He, he publicly just prayed right out in the middle of the open with believers and unbelievers, followers and non-followers. He prayed about how he was blessed that God would open up certain truths to babes and not to others. He prayed right in front of Lazarus's tomb that even though he always knew that God heard him, his father, that he was blessed that he could say those things so that other people could know, the people who were standing around. <laughs> he literally prayed acknowledging the people standing around listening to him. He prayed out loud. He prayed silently. He prayed early in mornings. We know that. He prayed late into nights, through the night sometimes. He prayed with fasting, 40 days even. And he prayed eating, feeding the 5,000. says he broke the bread and looked up into heaven, giving thanks. He prayed for himself. <clears throat> Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. He prayed for others. Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as we, but I have prayed for you. He prayed for friends. He prayed for enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He interceded. He praised. The idea is 
Jesus led a life of prayer. These various aspects of prayer touched all these different areas of his life, and Jesus is the example of what a Christian prayer life is to be. Now, we have other people who are examples and encouragements. I'm going to read some quotes by other people that I think are helpful and have been helpful to me, but uh, the reality is, you know, it's easy to when we talk about prayer, to take a little piece, well, you know, I don't pray in public, but I pray in private, or I don't pray like this, but I pray like that, or I don't really do this that much, but I do that that much. Really, we, we just, our aim is not to say what we do, but to put all those things aside and say, what does Jesus do? And this is what I'm trying to follow and grow into, mature into. The type of life of prayer that Jesus prays. So so the point is, a prayer life doesn't consist in saying vain repetitions, the same thing over and over again, or even just fulfilled times of prayer. I wake up at 5 a.m. and I pray till 9 a.m. We would think, man, that's really got to be like a prayer life. A person can do that. Well, not necessarily, because that's a prayer morning. If you stop there and go without praying, then there's a problem, right? There should be a life of prayer that that reaches everywhere. Even for myself, I feel like the Lord had to walk me through things because you begin to notice these different things. Okay, prayer and supplication and intercession and fasting and praying for enemies and praying for friends. And you notice all these different kind of aspects of prayer in the Bible. And if you have a time of prayer which I did, you would try to fit it all in there. And you'd be like, this time is not very fruitful. (laughs) I don't have enough time to do it. I'm kind of frustrated. I'm trying to spend time with the Lord in a different way. And and it's kind of off. But then you realize a prayer life is not just fitting everything I want into a specific time. That is one aspect of a prayer life. A prayer life is fitting the right type of prayer into the right place in my life at the right time. And all these different mentions and aspects of prayer are supposed to fit into our life correctly. And that's why we have so many different examples and exhortations and applications and words for prayer in the Scripture. They're all supposed to find their proper place. And what Paul is saying here... Again, right in the beginning, he says, therefore, I, I exhort, first of all, the idea is he wants more and more of this. He's going to mention this prayer here. To, to exhort is to beseech, like Romans 12.1, to uh, encourage, to beg. So this isn't a command, even though there are commands to pray in the Scripture. Paul is, is, is entreating this group of believers, saying, look, you're probably already doing this even. But I'm beseeching you more and more, step into this. And the idea is, no matter where we are in our Christian life, nobody is quite living the prayer life that Jesus lived yet. Which means all of us can find a place to say, Lord, I can be exhorted to step into this more. doesn't matter how young I am or how old I am. There is a place for me to walk with you to have a, I won't just say uh, deeper, uh, sometimes that gives like a 
weird spiritual connotation, but a fuller prayer life in you. A more complete, more mature. And he wants, he's exhorting them to step into it. And he says, first of all, with the idea being a, a priority. This, this needs to be a priority in your life, which I think most people can readily admit. A prayer is not always a priority. It's something we agree with being a priority, but not making a priority. So, yes, there's no there's very few Christians in the world that will walk around and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and no, prayer doesn't need to be our priority. And we would all admit that. Yes, I confess. Yes, I agree with that. It is a thought that I will give my mental assent to. But the practice is where it becomes a problem. And what he's saying is, first of all, not just in our liturgy, even though that can be nice, not just in our idea, in dignity of priority in my life, Paul is beseeching them to make prayer something that's first. This type of exhortation has to happen because he knows that in all of our lives, this is going to be challenged. Now, certainly, Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to conspire against any type of true godly prayer life. That is going to be a part of what happens. Um, not just because my purposes are served, because if I pray, I will get whatever the thing is I want, but because God's purposes primarily are served in prayer. And he has good purposes toward me or you as individuals. But Satan is always going to be against that. And our prayer life will always have some type of pressure against it. So whether it's literally from the enemy or whether it's just from the world system we live in that he's influenced or whether it's from my flesh, I need to be exhorted and I need to be focusing on allowing this to be a priority in my life because it will always be in conflict with the enemy. And that's why... You know, your and my future prayer life, what the Lord would have for us, will never develop unless it is made an active priority, a focus. Unless it's thought on. That's why our heart will rebel against it, because it's fleshly. That's why it'll be easier to do other things. Right? It's easier to go to a Bible study or a conference or some retreat than it is to spend time in prayer. That's why circumstances will conspire against you. That's why you'll face literal, real spiritual warfare in growing in this arena. Now, nobody ever said maturing in our prayer life would be easy. Nobody said life would be easy at that. So certainly a prayer life won't be. But I do want to make it clear that whatever difficulty we find in prayer doesn't come from God. It's from us. He is the one who paid the cost so that we could come and pray. My difficulty is dealing with my own worldliness, selfishness, laziness, pride, fears, anxiety, right? It's not the problem in us growing in our prayer life. It's not from him. It's not prayer and it's not God. It comes from me or from the enemy. It's not from him. So, you know... Growing in our prayer life, it it doesn't have to be complex or mysterious or magic. Again, it's not going to be drifted into accidentally. You're going to have to deliberately seek to cultivate it. You're going to. That's why he can say, 
first of all, and it can actually be meaningful because it doesn't happen by accident. It has to be something you're actually thinking about. If I'm not actively honoring what the Holy Spirit is exhorting me to do here, this will not develop. Now, don't despair already of this study, right? Uh, God's Spirit is stronger than Satan's will. And I believe it was Spurgeon who said something along the lines of that whatever weapon our enemy would forge against us, it always has etched on it, shall not prosper, right? If he didn't say it, then he should have. But I think Spurgeon was the one who said something along those lines. But I like the idea, right? It doesn't, the enemy will form all types of strategies against us, but God is exhorting us to something, and I cannot be more let down by myself or the enemy than I am encouraged by God and what he's exhorting me to in his Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is exhorting these believers here to. So for you and I, I just want to, I'm going to read through and we'll talk about these different types of prayers he mentions here. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to make a couple comments that I hope can be helpful on each one. But I, I think the idea again is the the thought of me just sitting down and spending more time in prayer is not really what we find a ton in the Bible. That's a, it's a part of it. It's a good exhortation. But what we find is exhortation toward prayer in the proper type of prayer, all different types of prayer, in its proper place and time in your life. And that's what my aim should be. And more of that. And, of course, Christ being the ultimate example. So let's begin here again. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications would be made. Supplications are general requests. The Greek term conveys the thought of a request that we're bringing prompted out of a conscious sense of need or desire. This, this is the most kind of common type of prayer we would think of. Something comes up. I have a need, I have a desire, and I have to bring this to the Lord now. I respond in that need or that desire. And it's important to come to God with all of our basic needs and desires. He tells us to do it. It is the most elementary type of prayer. But when we do this truly, it keeps us from formality and repetition. Our supplications keep our life connected to God fresh because God becomes involved in all of my life. My work, my parenting, my personal life, my thoughts, my desires. If I really bring my supplication, the things I want and the things I need to him, what happens is the reality of prayer gets bound up in the reality of my life. And it's not just me praying about the things I know. It is me bringing all of my supplications to him. If my supplications die, if I'm not actually bringing to God the things that are happening in my life, my personal individual life, then my prayer life will die. And if my prayer life dies, my spiritual life is dying. There should be a reality where I am coming to God, bringing these things to him normally. I I come to God in prayer. I can't ignore the reality of life. Uh, If I do that, I'm coming to God as someone other than myself anyway. I'm an actor. If I'm not bringing my supplication to him, 
I'm praying as if I'm somebody else ignoring life. Just, you know, by cheesy example, if you get home and your dog threw up in the back room, and as you're going to clean that up, your kids come running down the stairs because one of them left the toy on the light too long and half their room burnt down. And you, in that moment, instead of praying for yourself and patience, begin to say, let's stop, guys, and let's pray for the persecuted church around the world. You're a hypocrite. You understand? I, like, this is not my actual life right now. My, my immediate supplication is, as a real normal person before God, God, help me to have patience. God, help me not to lose it. Help me to be a faithful parent. Help, help me not to kill my child or dog. Right? You understand? I, I have to come to God based on the reality of life. And what we do is we play act at times in terms of prayer. And we're not actually bringing true supplication to him. And what the Bible says and encourages us to do is, no, 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 bring your supplication to him, your, your conscious sense of desire or need. Bring that to him at every moment. Now, sometimes, again, we can do this, and, and I think some of us who are more pragmatic might say, well, I've tried that, and it doesn't really work a lot. I have brought my knees to him, and he hasn't answered my needs the way that I want him to. Now, there's a lot of different ways we could talk about that. But one thing I will say is I think Satan is going to attempt and does attempt to really degenerate our supplications by turning them into some type of manipulation tactic. And what I mean by that is this. We might not mean to do this, but we do it because we're sinners. Our selfishness knows no bounds. So we try to leverage everything in our lives for our own benefit. We leverage money for our own benefit, time for our own benefit, comfort for our own benefit, friends for our own benefit, people for our own benefit. We, in our own way, constantly try to take the things in life and leverage them for ourselves. And if it looks good then the happier the flesh is. If I can leverage this thing that looks spiritual for myself and be spiritual and get what I want, two's better than one. And one of the things that we begin to do is leverage God. And we begin to try to use him for our own purposes and we bring our supplications to him. And if we don't get what we want, we get a little miffed. And then maybe we try a little harder. And if we put a little more emotion into it, or we try to get a little holier first, then pray a little harder, he should respond. But if he doesn't, then we're done with him in prayer. Right? Didn't turn out exactly the way that I wanted. We are called to come to God for our daily needs. We are called to bring everything that we have to him and to trust him there. Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 31 through 32, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. If God doesn't answer my supplications, it's because he loves me. We kind of flip this to the opposite 
Like if God gave us everything we wanted all the time, if he always answered all of our supplications with a yes, he wouldn't be God. He would be a genie. And of course, our selfishness and sin would know no bounds. And what would end up happening is, <clears throat> I wouldn't have faith in God. I would have faith in prayer. The system would be what I trust, not the person. I don't have faith in the system when I pray. I have faith in the person. I bring my supplication to the Father. And Jesus says, your Father already knows what you need. And we say, well, then why pray at all? Well, because love wants to be entreated. He wants you to bring everything to him. I have two girls. I want them to come to me with everything they want. You can ask me for that ice cream. No. <laughs> I want to know what you want, but I also reserve the right as father to say yes and no, to give you what is best for you. I want them to come to me for everything. I don't want them to run around to other people. But as a father, I already know what they need. Now, if your grandpa or grandma or uncle, you give them whatever they want, right? That's why the Bible doesn't say that we pray, our uncle in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Or grandma in heaven, right? Our father in heaven is the one we're coming to. Because the father reserves the right to say, yes, this is what's best for you. And even the blessings I give, I know when it's right for you to have them in your life. Or when it's too much for you. And if we came to God, believing in the fatherhood of God as a reason for praying, which is what Jesus says. And we came and just put all our wants and our desires before him as he asks us to do. The realization of this will make prayer way easier. It would make prayer for a lot of us a lot less stressful. Because I allow him to filter out what I need and what I don't. Because I don't actually always know what I need. And I recognize my selfishness is deeper than I would know. And I bring those things to him, and I leave the request with him. And I still look for an answer. I still expect it, right? If my kids come to me, and again, say, could we have an ice cream? And I say, maybe. Then they wait and watch, <laughs> right? Wait a little bit. Then they're, you know, how long? How long? Now? When? How? Now? Right? Sometimes we do the, we come to God and we pray. And he might give us a little pause, a wait, or a maybe. And, you know, we're, we're like kids who just let balloons up in the air in our prayers. We just let them go and never think about them again. Who knows where that thing went? We should be like Habakkuk, who sat in his tower and said, I'm going to wait for an answer. He's, he's my father. He's going to respond to me at some point. And, and because we have these wrong ideas, our prayer life suffers. We could grow in supplicating God. And bring all our wants and desires to our Father, who already knows what we need, and say, Lord, I'm just going to put this in your hand. At any moment, any time, any little thing. Nothing's too small, nothing's too big. And he's not only going to give me what I need. I think we know that about God. He gives me way more than I deserve. He's, he's good to bless. But he won't give me anything that's wrong. So when he says no, he needs to say no. 
It's because he loves me. We are supposed to come and make a priority of bringing our supplications to him. That fills up a lot of your day, not just a little time in the morning. The second thing he says, supplications and prayers, that word there is used of all types of prayer in the scripture, but many times it has the idea of prayer specifically to God. Uh, and there's a sanctity to it, a reverence to it. It carries the idea of I'm being caught up with the person more than the thing that I am bringing. So a lot of times we come to God in prayer and we have our supplications. And this is kind of a another level to it where we say, okay, Lord, I'm bringing this thing to you, but I am more aware of my father than I am of my desire for ice cream. That's maturity. Right? I am more aware of God in his person than I am just of the thing that I'm bringing to God. I am coming in prayer. There's a removing of my shoes and a recognition of some holy ground there. And this is something that's on my heart, and I can come to him, and I, I want to come to him. But I'm recognizing who he is. I'm praying to God. I'm pouring out my heart to God. And, and there's wonderful aspects of that that raise us up in joy and thanksgiving, and there's humbling aspects to that. Sometimes we come like that woman who thought, I just, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, but if I do that, I'll make him unclean. Right? And to really come acknowledging who we are and who he is becomes a problem. And sometimes that's why people don't want to pray because they think, how can I pray? How can I honestly come to him? And what, again, we're called to do is live in the reality of what he already knows. Fenelon would say this. I, I love, this has been a very meaningful um, quote for me in my prayer life. He would say, talk with God with the thoughts that your heart is full of. If you enjoy the presence of God, if you feel drawn to love him, tell him so. Such conscious fervor will make time of prayer fly without exhausting you. For all you will have to do is pour forth your abundance and say what you feel. But what you ask are you to do in times of dryness or inner resistance and coldness. Do the same thing. Say equally what is in your heart. Listen to this. Tell God that you no longer feel any love for him that everything is a terrible blank to you, that he wearies you, that his presence does not even move you, that you long to leave him for the most trifling activity, and that you will not feel happy till you have left him and can turn to thinking about yourself. Tell him all the evil you know about yourself. is meaningful to me because I find my own heart there too often. But maybe that's I'm not supposed to say that as a pastor, right? But I can as a man that my heart too often like, God, I want to get away from you and just go think about stupid things. 
right? We don't like to say that. It doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? But doesn't he know? Doesn't he know already? And Satan will either use that to keep me away from praying, or I come to God and I make it my prayer. This is where we start. I can acknowledge the truth of things here. Let me read you this from another godly man. He said, Verily I may but speak of my own experience, and from that tell you the difficulty of praying to God as I ought. It's enough to make you poor, blind, carnal men to entertain strange thoughts of me. For, as for my heart, when I go to pray, I find it so loath to go to God, and when it is with him, so loath to stay with him, that many times I am forced in my prayers, first to beg of God that he would take my heart and set it on himself in Christ, and when it is there, that he would keep it there. Nay, many times I don't know what to pray for. I am so blind, nor how to pray. I am so ignorant. Only blessed be grace. The Spirit helps our infirmities. John Bunyan, pretty godly man. That, that confession encourages me, right? That's why it's meaningful for me. Lord, if I'm going to pray, not even, even the most remarkable saints didn't always have some great feeling. They didn't always have some spiritual high. They didn't always come to God feeling totally pure. Prayer looked like humility, contrition of heart, mercy, holiness, spirit, and truth. Again, it is immaturity that's always looking for candies and sweets. To truly pray will force us to a place of self-denial. A place, place where we again pick up our personal cross and say, yeah, that needs to die here, Lord. This isn't what you're like. And it will bring us to a place of supernatural life beyond the cross like Jesus promises. But sadly, the good feelings, when they end, is right where many people stop, right when their devotion's about to begin, right when their true prayer is just about to begin. Got a little hard, started to look at myself a little negatively. Right when you are about to pray, you turn away. The incredible thing that God gives us is his grace to come. Yeah, pour that out. I already know that. Stand before me in truth and honesty. A broken and contrite heart, I don't despise that. When I go to pray, I don't pray in the name of Mike Foch, everything that is negative. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ the one who led the perfect prayer life, the perfect life before God. Jesus promised his disciples, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
Right? We, we say in Jesus' name, got to tack that on there, it doesn't count. We say that, but we forget the true value of it. But when you really bring your prayer to God, when I'm really pouring out my heart to God, I'm not just saying prayers and running away. I am praying. Now it becomes the difference between my prayers and my praying. I can't just say my prayers. I have to pray my prayers. That's what we're talking about here. I am praying before God. I am acknowledging his person. I am more caught up with him than I am with me. And his reality reveals my lack. But his reality of love makes up for it. He's sufficient. And so I can bring myself there. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. And so I can remain. And I can pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the next he says, supplications, prayers, and intercessions. Intercessions is a unique term. Really, this word is only used in 1 Timothy 4, 5. Uh, different versions of it are used. It carries an idea of falling in with somebody, meeting for conversation. Historically, it was used actually kind of as a negative thing where you would approach a magistrate or a king and bring an indictment against somebody. I do not believe Paul is using it in that way here. Uh, there was a formal approach to a court, kind of the idea of if I'm a farmer and I feel I'm being wronged, I would write a petition to my local magistrate, and hopefully that person would represent me to the higher-ups so that my petition could be heard and answered. There, there's a, a meeting, a going to meet with somebody, and then a giving of that, that petition or that request or that supplication, whatever it would be. And then there's a certain trust, personal and public, on what would happen there. So in some senses, obviously, that, that intercession is not just always on behalf of another. It can be for myself. And I think there's a, there's a personal side of that freedom that we have in meeting that the word describes. We can go to the Lord at any time. The scriptures tell us to pray without ceasing. How can that be possible? Well, there's an open line of communication between God. I can talk to him about anything and everything. I could bring my petition to him about anything and everything. Ole Housby, O-O-L-E, Ole, um, said this, Because prayer is an expression of our personal life with a personal God, it readily assumes the forms and characteristics of personal life. We know that conversations between persons do not take place according to certain prescribed rules and regulations, but occur freely and spontaneously, as occasion may, requ may require. That is what makes conversation personal, gives it life and freshness. The more personal conversation is in the sense of the word, the more it becomes real communication, a mutual exchange of ideas in which life speaks to life. So also with prayer. Old Housby wrote a great little book on prayer called Prayer, believe it or not. I would encourage you to pick it up if you want to be encouraged in this. But the idea is this. The more that I can converse with a person about, the more our conversation is normal and clean and comfortable, the closer we are. Awkward conversation makes for awkward relationships. Limited conversation makes for limited relationships. 
easy and trusted conversation over a wide range of life and topics reveals richer fellowship. If you talk with somebody and you just get to weather and sports, might not go very deep. But if there's somebody that you can actually talk with about your fears and your failings, your triumphs and your joys, that person you probably have a deeper relationship with. Christ, our intercession with him, is supposed to be able to share everything. At all times, the beauty of a marriage is sharing all of life together. Big things, little things, feelings, hopes, joys, fears. I can, I can go to this person and I can trust that I am sharing with this person. We, in our relationship with the Lord, should be able to do the same. Ceaselessly have this open line of communication to share with him, to talk with him, to bring our petition to him. His interests should be our interests, and our interests are his interests. He cares about us. He wants us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. He opened the door of approach in this. It might seem like sharing all of my life with God might seem kind of trite to the Almighty God. Why would he want to do this? Um, shouldn't he really have something better to do? He's the one who invites us into it, though. He's the one who encourages us. And the wonderful thing is, he's the only person who will never misunderstand you in the things you share with him freely. Right? There are certain friends who will say certain things to them because you won't take this the wrong way. He's the only one who won't ever take it the wrong way. And he's the only one who will never reject us, no matter what we speak. And I can have that constant coming to him. Four, he says, there's intercessions. There's another public side. We'll, we'll get to it if we can. Thanks be made. Giving of thanks be made for all men. This is the expression of a heart filled with gratitude. I should express the gratitude that is in my heart for the Lord. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. If there's no thanks or praise for him or in my mouth or in my prayer, then there's a problem. Because it means it's not in my heart. And, and really, all true prayer is something that is formed in your heart before it ever comes out of your lips. It's a reality inside of you before it ever gets formed into words. That's why the Holy Spirit can interpret our groans. And why God knows our thoughts before they come into our head. That, that prayer is a reality there. And then it should just be expressed. And we can feel sometimes like, I don't feel a lot of gratitude in my heart. I don't feel a lot of thanks in my heart. This is not my worship song. Why didn't they pick a different one? You know, like we can, we can have kind of an attitude where we look at our hearts and it could be hard to find there. But to some degree, the value of prayer is always going to be greater than what our hearts or our feelings are, even when we are really feeling it. And I don't just find that in comparison around others. They're not my measuring stick. It's always the word of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if we are to pray aright, perhaps it is quite necessary we pray contrary to our own heart. Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. If we were de entirely dependent on ourselves, we would probably only pray the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. But God wants it otherwise. The richness of the word of God ought to determine prayer, not the poverty of our heart. 
The richness of the word of God ought to determine prayer, not the poverty of our heart. And man, how rich in praise and thanks to God is the word of God. Some of the most remarkable sections of the word of God are people's prayers. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, John 17. Some of the most remarkable things said about God are prayers. Things men prayed. The expression of thanksgiving in their heart. Don't we need to grow here? Shouldn't this be a larger part of our prayer life? Shouldn't that be filtering down into other places like Jesus standing in a crowd thanking God that these things are revealed to babes because it was a reality in his heart? He's not trying. It's, you know, we're all afraid to act too spiritual. But we should also be afraid to resist and press back what is actually spiritual the reality of the things that God is doing in our hearts and in our lives. Now, there is more here, not just in this passage. Fasting is a piece of prayer that should find its proper place. Again, Jesus would say in Matthew 6, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces, and they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Do not appear to men to be fasting, but your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father, uh, your, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Prayer in terms of spiritual warfare, Jesus would say to his disciples, and he said to them, "This kind cannot come out except by prayer and fasting." Jesus links literally that to warfare. Ephesians 6, again, praying with all supplications and prayers for all men uh, in terms of that spiritual warfare. Again, we forget, I pray to God for others against Satan. There's always a negative conflict in terms of what God wants to do and what this other hardened will in the universe wants to do. If you feel the heat of the battle in your prayers, if it's hard, it should tell you how much it's worth. Right? If Satan's not giving you any effort against that prayer, probably not a very key target. If it starts to get heated, you're where you're supposed to be. That's an important battle for you to fight. Because Satan knows one honest prayer can destroy what he's been developing for years. He doesn't like that. He wants to keep that out of your life. Prayer as a labor, which is prayer employed as a means of doing spiritual work. Ephesians, or excuse me, Colossians 4, 12 through 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Intercession, again, we talked about, but this is the more public idea. Prayer as identified not just in my communication with him, but identified with another, prayer on behalf of another, a request brought to a superior to intercede for another. Isaiah 59, 15 and 16 say this, And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. 
Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness is sustained him. Here in this passage, God is looking at the people of God who have become totally corrupt, the Israelites. And I think this is remarkable because humans, man, even us as believers, are often shocked at God's seeming inaction when it comes to wickedness. God, why aren't you doing anything here? Yet in the case of intercession, this verse here in Isaiah, God flips the tables. And it actually says what we're told is God is in a divine state of astonishment. Pretty remarkable. God wondered. And his divine state of astonishment is this. Man's failure to take advantage of the power of intercession to restrain wickedness and promote righteousness. Man's looking around like, God, what are you doing? And God is astonished that in all the wickedness you're living in, there's not a single person who's stirred up to be an intercessor? I gave you this avenue. I can't find a single person who will be. He wondered that there was no intercessor. Christ has taken up this ministry of intercession. The Bible tells us, Romans 8, Hebrews 7, he is interceding for us. Can Christ believe this is such an important ministry to give himself to? And we think it's not. Is it still a divine astonishment when he looks at our nation or our lives personally? Is this not a place that we can grow in our prayer life. You see, it's hard, isn't it, to believe he'll do that? He'll restrain wickedness. He'll promote righteousness if I intercede. See, what we tend to do is we're like, well, maybe Pastor Joe. Like if Pastor Joe prayed a little more, it would probably count. It's not that God doesn't promise things or we can't read it. It's just the promises are too good to be true. It must be true for someone else, but not for me. And we need, as individuals, to come to the place where we, in faith, say, no, it's true for me. And in faith and desire, also say, and I want my portion of that. If it's true, I want my portion of that, Lord. Teach me. Grow me here. I would like to say this as well, back in Timothy. Uh, you can notice the heading, Prayer for All Men, and then probably also in your Bible, Men and Women in the Church. The, the idea here, as Paul is writing to Timothy, just to give you a wider context, the context is the congregation, the church. So he is saying this not just to Timothy as a spiritual leader. This is supposed to go out to everybody, So and in a public setting. So prayer is, yes, private, but it is also public. And it is supposed to be for everyone. It has its proper place in everyone's life. The whole congregation is called to this life of prayer. It's not just the individual leaders. Again, Wilbur Chapman would say this, If we would do more pleading with God, we would not have to do so much pleading with men. It is not great preaching that we need, but great praying. It is power, power from on high that we need today. And I desire to impress this upon every layman who reads these lines. It is one of Satan's wiles to lead the church to throw all responsibility 
for the possession of the spiritual dynamite and success in spiritual work upon the minister, the membership indulging themselves in worldliness and unspirituality. At Pentecost, it was Peter and the whole church filled with the Holy Ghost that harvested 3,000 souls, not Peter alone, facing the mob with a breaking heart. This is for all of us, all of us individually called to it. And the scope of this life extends not just to ourselves, but notice again, for prayer and giving thanks made for all men and who all who are in authority. That word all means all in the Greek. Uh, all men, all who are in authority. The context is for all of us, and the scope extends outward large. This life is supposed to affect all men and all authority. If Paul thought prayers for big groups of people and big human government were useless, he would not say this. I know we talk about specified prayers, and that is good. That's an encouragement we need. But the idea is the Bible also talks about big prayers, and if you and I are seeing big world-encompassing things or nation-encompassing things, we should pray a prayer that encapsulates that. That's why Jesus still says we should pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the whole world. On earth as it is in heaven. Again, he prays in John 17... I do not pray for these alone, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. He prays for every saint that would ever hear the word of God from his disciples. I don't just pray for these alone, his disciples, but all those. That's us right here today. He prays a prayer that goes down the line of history to touch every single person that would believe the truth that would come from those disciples. That's an incredible prayer, isn't it? To think you can pray something like that and God can hear that can we grow in this I'm supposed to pray for everybody those that are struggling and those who seem like they're doing well of course we never know the head Jesus Christ tells us to pray for the whole body because the head always registers who's hurting and if one member's hurting then the whole body's hurting and we might not notice it but he notices he says pray for all the saints we should pray for everybody in this church and we should pray for those beyond and all men. Everyone we're around, we should be a continual fountain of blessing to through intercessory prayer. And the people you're around the most should get it the most. Even if it's just your family, like, God, I live with these girls. I'm a sinful, selfish man. Be gracious to them. <laughs> Let the good of your spirit in them overcome the wickedness of my flesh in me. I live with these people. Have mercy on them. You should be able to pray that in your own words, whatever the Lord puts on your heart. All men, maybe our context and our scope of our prayer life needs to grow. Maybe he's calling us to that. You see, in the end, If we heed these things, both the Lord and Satan knows what the outcome is. And it's a maturing of our own lives 
and a power in God's purposes. Uh, we, we all start somewhere, and that's fine. He doesn't ask us to be perfect. He just asks us to be growing. And whatever he reveals to our eyes, we should take and obey there. You're not going to take all the pieces and all of a sudden put them all together. You're going to grow. God is going to say to you, you've never fasted. I want you to make this a piece of your prayer life now. You don't give thanks. I want you to make this a piece of your prayer life. Other people in your life pray for your own family more than you do. This needs to be a new piece of your prayer life. He will speak to you about adding prayer into your life and show you where to build. And it will make you like him. And his prayer became a power. It was out of strength that he prayed. And it made a difference. I will finish with this because I can't say it better than this. But again, Christ was our example in the beginning, and he is our example, again, of what we're maturing into. And this is a great picture of Christ's mature prayer life. This author says, So many of us pray because we are driven by need rather than kindled by grace. Our prayer is a cry rather than a hymn. It's a quest rather than a tryst. It trembles more than it triumphs. It asks for strength rather than exerts it. How different was the prayer of Christ? All the divine power of the eternal Son went into it. It was the supreme form taken by his sonship and its experience in action. Nothing is more striking in Christ's life than this combination of selflessness and power. His consciousness of power was equal to anything, and egoism never entered into him, and his prayer was accordingly. It was the exercise of his unique power rather than of his extreme need. It came from his uplifting and not his despair. It was less his duty than his joy. It was more full of God's gift of grace than of man's poverty of faith of a holy love than a seeking heart. In his prayer, he poured out neither his wish nor his longing merely, but his will. He knew he was heard always. He knew it was such power and certainty that he could distribute his value, bless with his overflow, and promise his disciples that they would be heard in his name. It was by his prayer that he countered and foiled the godless power in the world, the kingdom of the devil. Satan has desired to have you, but I have prayed for thee. His prayer means so much for the weak because it arose out of his strength and its exercise. It was chiefly in his prayer that he was the Messiah, the revealer and wielder of power and the kingship of God. His power with God was so great that it made his disciples feel it could only be the power of God. He prayed in the eternal spirit whereby he offered himself to God. And it was so great because it was spent on God alone. So true is it that the kingdom of God comes not with observation, that the greatest things Christ did for it were done in the night and not in the day. His prayers meant more than his miracles. And his great triumph was when there was none to see, and they all forsook him and fled. He was mightiest in his action for men, not when he was acting on men, but on God.
Oh. And this Christ still lives and intercedes for us. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you have shown us and what you've invited us into. And Lord, we know in our own hearts and in our own lives um, that we fall short in so many ways, but you are gracious, Lord, to reveal where you want to grow us. And you don't break a bruised reed or quench a smoking flax. You build it up. You cut what doesn't need to be there so that there can be life. And Lord, I just ask personally and for all those here that you would stir up our hearts and our life in you, our supplication, our prayer, our intercession, our requests and thanksgiving and joy in you. Lord, I do ask that you would give what you command. You would stir up in your spirit what you want to see brought to life. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us this privilege of prayer, mysterious as it is, unique as it is. We thank you that you have invited us into your presence and into this life of communication with you. So grow us, Lord, in grace and in the knowledge of you, and stir up, Lord Jesus, in our fellowship, labors that you would impel into your fields of prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.